Welcome to the JMD podcast, the companion podcast to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease. Every fortnight, we bring you author interviews about recent publications, and there are also frequent shortcasts, brief summaries of interesting work published in JMD reports. If you're interested in metabolic medicine, why not download the Wiley Online Library app and add JMD and JMD reports to your favorite journals? But not before listening to this latest podcast on novel biomarkers in GLUT1 deficiency syndrome. Hello there. I'm delighted to welcome two new faces to the podcast to discuss their recent paper, Novel CSF Biomarkers of GLUT1 Deficiency Syndrome, Implications Beyond the Brain's Energy Deficit. And discussing this paper are soon to be Dr. Tessa Peters of the Department of Neurology at Radabath UMC in Nijmegen and Dr. Letizia Piaz Pelletero, a child neurologist working at the Hospital San Juan de Deux in Barcelona. Tessa and Letizia, thank you for joining me this morning. Hello. Good morning. Thank you both for joining me. I, it was one of our very first podcasts that we talked about the ketogenic diet in metabolic epilepsies, and that meant we touched upon GLUT1 deficiency. But that was over two years ago. And to my rather basic brain, it's a condition where you have sugar in your blood, but maybe you can't get it to your brain. Is, is it as simple as that? Yes. Thank you, James. So certainly there is an impairment in the glucose transfer to the brain in this condition as uh, the glucose transporter regulates glucose transport across the brain-blood barrier and astrocytes into neurons. However, it's not simple as that, and there is a need for further understanding. Brain energetic metabolism has a great dependence on glucose as a main fuel, and this is critical in the first years of life and explains why clinical manifestations are more severe in patients with an early clinical onset. And from a genetic point of view, the impact of pathogenic variants or deletions on the SLC2A1 gene will impact the function and or expression of the glutamine transporter in a variable way. And residual activity of the transporter correlates with the clinical severity. So patients with a higher residual activity would likely present milder phenotypes. And from a treatment point of view, early diagnosis is very important. So GLUT1 patients starting a ketogenic diet as an alternative energy fuel show uh, a more favorable prognosis if they start a treatment at a younger age. And some clinical symptoms such as epilepsy improve, but there are other symptoms, motor and cognitive deficits that do not improve despite the diet. So there's ongoing research on how glucose shortage and GLUT1 transporter dysfunction affect other functions in brain development and energetic homeostasis. For example, it, it has been suggested that glucose shortage in the brain impacts complex lipid biosynthesis, and also GLUT1 transporter deficiency affects cerebral angiogenesis, as uh, endothelial cells are very glycolytic. And as a consequence, there is a brain microvasculature diminution, and this has been shown to contribute to a neuroinflammatory response and diminish BDNF levels, fewer neurons. So in general terms, there are other factors involving brain metabolism that need to be addressed for a better understanding of the pathophysiology in GUT1. And this paper provides a very interesting insight on, on new CSF markers that Tisa will explain us further. Um, coming back to the disorder itself, I mean, I'm, I'm a clinician, first and foremost. All the science stuff always confuses me. In terms of manifestations, when is one going to suspect GUT1 deficiency in, in children? You've talked a lot about the science behind the disorder, but actually what are the clinical features that make one think, actually, is this what's going on? Yeah, so the GUT1 clinical spectrum is wide and symptoms vary depending on the patient's age. There is a, a classical phenotype described as developmental delay, intellectual disability, early onset epilepsy, head growth deceleration, sometimes with microcephaly and movement disorders and non-epileptic paroxysmal events. 
it's interesting that movement disorders can be permanent or paroxysmal and symptoms typically may present before meals and improve with food intake. But over the years, the phenotypic spectrum in glute wound has expanded and we must suspect this condition also in milder or non-classical phenotypes. In general, we must suspect it in both children and adults with any unexplained movement disorder, with spasticity, dystonia, ataxia, children with drug-resistant epilepsy or early-onset absence epilepsy or DO syndrome, and any unexplained paroxysmal event at any age, such as dyskinesias, especially if triggered with fasting or exercise. And um, interesting, there are some isolated symptoms that could guide GLUT1 diagnosis, such as paroxysmal eye-head movements in infancy, which seem to be quite specific, but frequently we'll find this in combination with other neurological signs. So can you have adults who are completely symptom-free and are subsequently diagnosed with GLUT1 deficiency? Yes, we have been diagnosing some adult patients normally due to having a diagnosis on their children. And sometimes they have milder phenotypes with only paroxysmal movement disorders, or maybe there is mild intellectual disability. But sometimes when we look back, we might find other symptoms that had not been identified. But there are being adults with diagnosis and milder phenotypes. So something else for our adult IMD colleagues to look out for then? I'm sure we'll have many more descriptions in adults over the next years because we're improving maybe our diagnostic yield. But so far, it's still a pediatric field mostly. Curious. And, and in these more unusual cases, is the diagnosis um, made always via CSF and, and blood uh, glucose comparison? Or are you doing um, whole exome and, and panel work for these? Yes. Yeah, so CSF biomarkers like either. Glucorachia and lactate are very important and useful biomarkers in our usual clinical practice, and genetic analysis confirmation is performed in all cases. So, there are other biomarkers that are not used on a daily routine, such as the expression of GLUT1 transporter on the surface of uh, red blood cells. But we have been using those new biomarkers also to, to see if it's useful for screening or for some cases in which we do not have a genetic demonstration. And we have to bear in mind that uh, lumbar puncture and CSF glucose and lactate remain as the gold standard biomarkers. However, for follow-up or other scenarios, we, we, we do not usually perform lumbar punctures, right? So there's a need to maximize what we obtain from our first like our CSF samples when we perform them. So that's like very interesting also because this is going to explain about this new CSF biomarkers, which might be useful. And as well, we need to have a, an open mind on new biomarkers, like clinical biomarkers and blood biomarkers that could be useful in follow-up. As you say, this work is all about biomarkers and we're finding those biomarkers through a sort of a metabolomic process. And I mean, the amount of detail that's derived here is insane in terms of what you can get from just looking at, at fluids within the body, both blood and, and CSS, as you mentioned. What exactly did you do in this piece of work? So uh, I'll, I'll try to explain that. So, of course, unfortunately, from a scientific point of view, we are not able to look inside patients' brains. So that's why we are looking at the cerebrospinal fluid, because we think that brain metabolism is reflected very well in this fluid, which is also demonstrated by the known biomarkers, glucose and lactate. So basically, what we tried to do here was to collect as many cerebrospinal fluid samples as we could get, and then try to measure all the small molecules in this fluid by metabolomics. So with the metabolomics approach, the idea is just to measure as many molecules as possible, and then from that, try to extract 
the most relevant ones. So we did this by liquid chromatography mass spectrometry, a technique that allows you to measure many molecules at the same time. And then based on chemical properties of a molecule, you can deduce which signal belongs to it. And yeah, to go from tens of thousands of signals, and then we brought it back to three <laughs> of which we said those are very interesting and uh, new. So you apply a lot of filtering steps, of which I think the most important one is, of course, do we see a deviation in the intensity of the signal in patients compared to control samples? So is there actually anything changing for this molecule? Because if not, then it's not really relevant to our research question. Yeah, so for this study, we chose to only look at CSF because we also think that that is where you will be able to find differences. Also, if you look at just blood, you won't see any changes in glucose. So basically their blood looks normal, as far as we know, at least. So it, it could still be interesting to also do metabolomics on blood of blood 1 deficiency patients, but we haven't done that so far. And when you're applying the research question, I mean, you're talking about tens of thousands of, of features, you're whittling those down to just a few. What was your patient cohort like that you're working with? So at first we had eight patients together with 15 controls and our main goal was just to find differences between those groups and then over time we were able to collect a few more samples so we had a validation cohort with four more patients and then many more controls because of course there are many more controls in the world than glut one deficiency patients so that is on the one hand quite a limited group but in the world of rare diseases i was personally already very happy to have more than 10 patients in total. And it was actually enough to find some relatively subtle differences because, of course, for many metabolic diseases, we're used to these huge accumulations or metabolites that are just not produced at all, very black and white. But with GLUT1 deficiency, it's a bit more subtle. And luckily, we were actually able to pick up these subtle differences despite our relatively small group. Leticia mentioned in her introduction that you see these these milder GLUT1 cases, did did your cohort of 10 give you enough sort of heterogeneity to say that these three features you've seen are going to be present in all patients or is it just the more severe cases? Uh, so I think most of our patients did have the classical phenotype, but we did also have some mild cases. Well, of course, we wanted to make sure that the patients we included were actually GLUT1 deficiency patients to start with. So we said, well, if you look at phenotype, TSF parameters and genetics, they should have at least a clear GLUT1 profile for two of those. But yeah, we do have some variation already in our cohort with regard to severity. We had one patient that had already been treated with a ketogenic diet, which is also quite interesting. But I do think that we would want to study more patients in the future to get an even broader range than we have now. Because, yeah, it, it is a limited group, so you don't cover every type of GLUT1 patient, basically. And we often talk about glycosylation disorders in the podcast. The, the glycomaniacs are always trying to claim other people's disorders as their own. And I know that O-glycosylation comes up in your work here. Is, is that some sort of secondary effect or is this another CDG waiting to be renamed? Uh, no, I would call it a secondary effect indeed. So yeah, with, with CDGs, the defect is really in the glycosylation process itself. 
for instance, the enzymes that are involved in those processes. And what we think here is that because there's low glucose in the brain and glucose is actually like a building block for glycosylation processes, that that is what impairs the glycosylation even though the enzymes are working fine. Thank you. Something else they can't claim then. I suppose the the real question comes of where does this work lead us? Have you got enough data on these potential biomarkers for use in, in clinical practice? Is it going to change how you care for your patients? Um, I think at this point, maybe not yet. So we did look at the possible diagnostic value of these biomarkers uh, to see if they have any additional value next to the glucose and lactate parameters that we already have. We do see that they are quite yeah, low for most patients and even some patients where glucose was within the reference range. We do see that these new biomarkers are decreased. But, well, I think the main issue is still that we have a limited amount of patients, which leads to two problems, basically. First of all, it's always a bit tricky if you only have a limited set of patients to really know if it will also still apply to 100 patients, for instance. And I think one limitation I came across was that if you really want to do some more advanced calculations about specificity and selectivity of these biomarkers, then yeah, you would also need a bit more patients to make it statistically sound. So you have 12 patients total, and it would be great if you could build a model with different biomarkers as an input and then make a classification model, basically, for patients versus controls. And if you want to make a proper model, then only 12 patients is really limited. We always want to know at the end of podcasts is is what comes next. And this is a condition we've somewhat neglected within the podcast. So I suppose what I'd like to know from you, Tessa, is kind of where is this work going next? And perhaps, Letitia, if you could say, I don't know, is it just ketogenic diet or bust in GLUT1 or are there other things coming? Well, yes, I think definitely we're looking for other therapeutic strategies that could enhance the function or expression of the GLUT1 transporters. We do believe that we need to have a broader mind on the pathophysiology to be able to do something about the clinical symptoms that do persist, even though we have an inadequate diet. So right now we're finding the situation that patients are diagnosed on an earlier stage. So sometimes we, we see a, a higher percentage of patients with uh, milder phenotypes that are more functional. However, they have more difficulties on daily living in terms of a dystonia, dyskinesia, the uh, motor disorder, the learning disabilities. So we are working on new therapeutic strategies, but it is necessary to, to develop these biomarkers that can aid us not only on diagnosis, but also on follow-up. And that's the blood biomarkers that could target metabolomics or lipidomics and other markers may be useful for this purpose, right? Yeah, I think from, from a biochemical point of view, it, it is also interesting to add that I think one of our most important ideas that came from this work was that, like you mentioned in the beginning, GLUT1 deficiency is mainly thought to be a problem of energy metabolism. And since we found the disruption of glycosylation, or at least an indication of that, we think yeah, there may be more than disruption of energy metabolism. And right now, the therapy ketogenic diet is really aimed at only energy metabolism. Um, but we think it would be very interesting when developing new therapies to also have a broader view and see 
if you can also fix other processes that are disrupted by this disease. And in that regard, yes, some additional biochemical studies to really dive into this possible patho mechanism would be very interesting. Yeah. But genetic therapy is uh, something. However, it needs to be perhaps performed at a very early stage as processes such as the angiogenesis arrest that starts from a very early postnatal stage. So if time passes by, there are some consequences cannot be reversed in adulthood. So yes, I think we need to do both things, try early diagnosis and, and also develop new strategies for the patients that are on a daily practice. And So this is one condition that could benefit from genomic screening in newborns? That's a, a debate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's a debate that you know, in the UK, they seem to just solve by not having it and just cracking on regardless. But uh I guess we'll, we shall see. But there's a like, narrow therapeutic window proposed for genetic therapy, like what has been done so far in animal models. It's been suggested that this treatment would need to be, to be performed very early in the neonatal period. So this might probably lead to a need to have a newborn screening to be able to detect patients before they, they develop clinical symptoms, which are already reflect that there's brain damage and consequences throughout lifetime. But in the absence of a, a, a blood biomarker, screening is always going to have to be genetic, I presume. I, I think it, it would be tricky for this disease if you only had genetics, because it's an autosomal dominant disease. So the chance that you see a single variation in this, in this gene is, I think, relatively high. And yeah, then you're not sure yet if it's pathogenic or not, because usually you will only notice that at a later age. So uh, yeah, there could still be some discussion uh, about that for this disease. Yeah, I agree. We, we always need to rely on the metabolic signs of dysfunction because that's what might reflect better on the clinical picture. And sometimes only a genetic analysis might be very different to, to interpret. And, and also this metabolism biomarkers will lead us to a better understanding of good one deficiency in pathophysiology. And this is critical to develop new strategies, new therapeutic strategies. So I think this will still remain as a goal for the following years to come. Well, thank you both for your time and also for, for clearing that up for me, because like you say, it's going to run and run. If you would like to read this paper, please click the link in the podcast description or go to the general web pages and search for novel CSF biomarkers in GLUT1 deficiency. And if you find the podcast useful and even entertaining, please like episodes, click follow or even leave a review. Tessa and Leticia, thank you again for your time this morning. No problem. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.